Hi, this is Philip. This is Chelsea. This is Lindsay. This is Katie. And this is Hanging Hanging with with My Chromies. So today we're going to be talking to a researcher uh, by the name of Carter Mitchell, who's a very enthusiastic, very bright scientist who's looking at protein extracts from marine invertebrates and how they can be used as therapeutics. Before we start, um, I thought I'd start us with a little pop quiz so we can show off our general knowledge to all of our listeners. I'm a little nervous. Yeah, you should be. So it's a quiz of guess who I am. Okay. Philip. <laughs> well, start that again. <laughs> I'm an underwater animal. I live in the South Pacific by the Bikini Atoll. Nemo. This is so much more painful than I expected. Is this like 20 questions, can we ask? Uh, It was supposed to be three, which is what I've written, (laughs) but apparently, yes. Okay, I live in a pineapple. Under the sea, SpongeBob SquarePants. Well done. Wow. That's a nice sponge. Since nobody can see us, I am holding a yellow sponge. It's a nice yellow sponge. Next up, who is my pet? Gary? And what does Gary say? (laughs) And what is Gary? A sea snail. Well done, Lindsay. That was a good impression of Katie's voice there. I'm really good at impersonation. Where do I work? I don't think this is fair because I've never seen this show. Me neither. (laughs) Come on! You work at the Crab Shack. Yay. Crabby. What do I do? Be Crabby. And who do I work there with? What's my colleague's name? Katie, who clearly spent her whole childhood. Squidward. In front of the TV. Yay, Squidward. We're not going to talk about SpongeBob SquarePants today. We're going to talk about his lesser known brother. Which is? SquareBob SpongePants. Now, he doesn't work in the Crabby Patty Fry Cook place. He's in medical research. Oh, Oh, cool. I know. It's not a topic that we hear about a lot. Where did it come from? Going to the cinema with my son and falling asleep in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Mm -hmm. Your son wasn't the one falling asleep? No, I fell asleep. (laughs) But he made me watch it again when it came out on Netflix. And he's a big fan of SpongeBob. So yeah, this one's dedicated to Tyler. And I'd met Carter four or five years ago, I guess. And was just fascinated by his work and his enthusiasm for what he does. So thought it'd be interesting for us to listen and learn. And why marine? Well, when you think about evolution and how animals have evolved with defenses, you know, you've got sharp teeth, you've got sharp fangs, claws, armor plating, really smelly pee if you're a skunk. And marine invertebrates, you think they just sort of sit there. You're walking around in a rock pool, you see a starfish, you go back there three weeks later and it's still there. And so they have to develop other sort of novel defenses against predation and a lot of them produce these toxins. And these toxins can serve other purposes as well as therapeutics. So that's what we're going to hear about today. Cool. Carter, it's great to have you on the phone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, I was wondering, could you just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, sort of your background and what it is that you do? 
Well, uh, I am a human from Earth, and I really enjoy studying natural phenomena. And mm -hmm. I've been interested in proteins for quite some time now. First, I was very intrigued at uh, the ability of nature to synthesize natural products in the form of therapeutics that we might use. Um, and eventually, I became more and more fascinated by enzymatic mechanisms and proteins as therapeutics themselves. Uh, so really, anything protein-based is extremely exciting to me. I like the fact that they're polymeric and capable of carrying out function, structural support, etc. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're actually a polymer that's biodegradable, which has a lot of environmental implication as well. Yeah, absolutely. What was it that piqued your interest in this natural biologics? Uh, well, let's see. In undergrad, I was looking at sodium ion channels and how they work in the kidney. Um, I'm not really that big of a fan of biology, per se. It's more of how things are built and how they function and work in that context. Mm -hmm. So I moved over to get a PhD uh, in using crystallography to study proteins. And there I specifically studied um, biosynthetic machinery that make natural products. So what ended up happening is I found a postdoctoral fellowship opportunity where I drove up and down Oklahoma highways looking for dead animals to swab <laughs> for bacterial isolates that uh, could produce uh, antifungal or antibacterial and anti-cancer type uh, functions. And so we put together this pipeline because I really wanted to understand how to discover natural products mm -hmm. in the context of medicines. Um, we put together this pipeline looking at these organisms and uh, went through this whole process of, of increasing throughput and uh, increasing reproducibility and trying to find those microbes that nobody else has found. Uh, the natural product world is a little difficult in being able to identify the harder targets just because the low-hanging fruit has been examined for ages. Natural mm -hmm. products has a real rich history in, in humans, you know, humans' life, uh, starting from ancient times with wrapping wounds with leaves or eating specific plants because they recognize that it makes them feel better. There's always been some kind of synergism going on with humans mm. and natural products. I wonder how much of that was trial and error, or if they were oh, sort of mimicking oh, behavior of animals. Probably a lot of it. I mean, could you imagine just walking out into the wilderness and being like, that mushroom right there looks very <laughs> interesting. I'm just going to pick it up and eat it. I mean, I couldn't even imagine how many times they, they had to have somebody die before they realized this is Seriously. not a good one. Or go on a really wild trip and then be blown away <laughs> by it. Totally. totally. You were attracted driving up and down swabbing roadkill. That's... That's quite a unique <laughs> well, approach. That that's what I was attracted to. Is kind of that's just not what I said. That's what I ended up doing. It was you know a way that we could freely sample the mammalian microbiome without having to get a bunch of paperwork and clearance. And since it was on a public highway, mm -hmm. we didn't have to worry about uh, you know having to have you know private property or anything like that that would go on with it. So it was a very easy way to sample a million microbiome. Um, it was a unique experience. I learned a lot about drug discovery, and more importantly, my boss at that time met my current boss, and that's what moved me into this contractile research position where I'm looking at uh, bioactive proteins from marine sources, marine aqueous extracts in particular. Now, that's really interesting. I can understand the sort of readily available plant and mammalian land-based life. 
um, and a nice side business for the roadkill grill that you set up as well, obviously. <laughs> but the, yeah. the marine life, that seems to me, is that a sort of an untapped resource just for the accessibility of the samples? Well, so the the exploration of of marine life for natural products has has a very rich history. Um, a lot of times, you find small molecules. The small molecule world is is uh, very complicated in, in the marine environment uh, with extreme structural uh, complexities and amazing stereo control that's brought out from enzymes that biosynthesize them themselves. And uh, it's commonly accepted these days, I think, more so than in the past, that a lot of times the natural products are arising from microbes that are symbiotically living with the sponges. Mm -hmm. um, as you can, in the natural products world, one of the more difficult things is that when you go back to collect more of the sample, they may, might not make that compound anymore. And, uh, you know, that gets pretty frustrating. Or you could sample sponges throughout the ocean all over the place and uh, find that it only is being produced in these geographic locations, which is uh, is kind of interesting and frustrating, of course, as well. So environmental factors could influence the types of samples you're able to collect then? Is that Absolutely. Correct? And, and, I mean, if you think about these creatures that just set up shop and don't move anywhere, they need to have some pretty amazing defense mechanisms. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't be able to survive and still be here today. Mm. And um, these defense mechanisms are really what we want to take advantage of. If they're working in the oceans, you know, perhaps they'll work in us. And uh, if we could get them, um, if we can isolate them, find them, study them, and come up with an understanding of how they work, we can apply them to different types of uh, problems in human and I mean I guess truthfully we could come up with antimicrobials, you know, anti-tumor agents, etc. Mm -hmm. Looking at nature as our source, but specifically under the sea, it's a wildly different environment from uh, you know terrestrial plants that are very easy to sample. It's harder to go to the depths of the ocean to pull out samples of interest, although a lot of these aren't super deep. But still, it's, it's more difficult to collect these samples, uh, and I think that. It's ripe for the picking for certain types of molecules, mm -hmm. but we can't say that this is a brand new exploration. More of the newness of what it is that I do comes from the fact that I'm looking for proteins from these sources. That's usually not what people do. Right. So to harvest these samples, is it you just pull on your speedos and a snorkel and... You just uh, fortunately, down. I don't wear a speedo. Uh, fortunately, also, uh, I actually just get these samples shipped over to me from the place that I work. Mm -hmm. But uh, what ends up happening is an agreement comes up with the countries, and then there is a lot of paperwork, of course. And then some scientists go out on their boats, and they collect samples. Um, they're often scuba divers, mm -hmm. and they are you know, trying to understand or look for interesting environmental niches that might, you know, require some fierce competition that would result in these defense molecules being expressed, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so they'll collect their sponges, corals, sea cucumbers, which are like slugs, mm -hmm. uh, different brittle starfish and, and stuff like that. And they'll uh, bring them back onto the boat and they'll usually freeze them and ship them across the world. And then finally, we get it back here. Uh, source is submitted as a reference to a repository. And then um, 
what happens is the frozen material is crushed with dry ice, subsequently spun in a centrifuge, which affords the aqueous layer. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I work with. And then after the aqueous layer is extracted, uh, the organic layer, the organic phase is extracted. Right. So these are marine animals. Um, is the salinity of the sample a challenge? How easy are these samples to work with? Most people don't even like the aqueous fraction because most of the time it's 90% salt. So you have a substantial reduction in uh, sample size right off the bat, and it just requires more sample in general. But, I mean, the stuff that you're losing are is salt from salt water, mm-hmm. things like that. Some of these things are just snotty, disgusting mucoid-like <laughs> pellets, and it's really tough to deal with. The mucoid stuff, my gosh. It's, I can uh, only imagine. Oh, man, it's just obnoxious. It's stuck to your pipette. You don't know, you know, until you put water in it, and then you start mixing, and you're like, I can't take it back. <laughs> Try to pull your pipette out of there, and it's like your kid sneezed all over your hand and dealing with slime it's it's hard to deal with so i usually would mark down on my spreadsheet that this is mucoid so we do an ammonium sulfate precipitation and if we find that they're still active through whatever assay we're using then uh, i'll go ahead and try to do a bioactivity guided fractionation and then once you've done this what sort of chromatographic techniques do you use well since it's already salty i'll take that pellet we suspend it in uh, usually sodium phosphate, and I'll actually just go ahead and pass it over a phenyl hydrophobic interaction chromatography column mm-hmm. um, and collect the fractions. And then I've got a spin filter concentrate, and then I need a buffer exchange, and then I need to concentrate and then submit for assay. Um, and then after I get the results from that, we go on to the next step, which is usually my, my second favorite is anion exchange. Mm-hmm. With the quaternary amine, it seems to be working really well. So after the anion exchange, I'll usually go into size exclusion chromatography. But uh, that's usually the workflow, and I try to carry this out at room temperature because I don't want to work in a cold room. I've done that. <laughs> exactly. I've been there, done that. Yeah. And by this time, if you think about it, they took the sponge or cucumber or whatever, and they put it on dry ice and froze it and shipped it across the, the world. We get it. We grind it, centrifuge it, lyophilize it. I don't know if you could be any more hardcore with these proteins. <laughs> and they don't require the types of sensitivity, sensitive experiments that you might do for something that you just purified from human cells. You know, So I can treat them extremely harshly, and uh, they seem to tolerate it. And in fact, one of the, the active components I found from a sponge is an enzyme that's very potent um, against cancer cells. Uh, it's just generally cytotoxic. And once you look into it a little bit further, it's upregulating some oxidative stress pathways. Uh, it's, it's really neat. But the fact is, it's an enzyme that's gone through that whole entire process and is still active. That's proteins, you know. That's proteins. They have lives of their own, don't they? They do. And, you know, a lot of people just don't like working with proteins because of that. You can come up with one general workflow, and then I can probably throw 15 problems at it where it won't work. Yeah. That's why a lot of people do genomics. It's that much easier. Yeah, it is. It's it's uh, it's a cool – well, I don't – it has its own problems, you know, but <laughs> my problem with genomics is I don't have the genome. Mm-hmm. Even if I did, I wouldn't know if it was coming from a sponge or a symbiotic bacteria. Or right. Yeah. But, you know – I'm doing whatever I can. Once we have an isolated protein, 
after these chromatographic techniques and we confirm bioactivity, we then go through uh, protein sequencing. Mm -hmm. And that in itself is a, a very difficult process. If we're really lucky, we might be able to get 15 milligrams from the amount of sample that, we, that we're given. You know, you're describing this. It's a difficult-to-collect sample. It's not an endless resource. It's not, you know, this could be a wonderful cancer therapeutic, but this doesn't have a commercial path, presumably, just with the complexity of getting the sample. So what about synthetic versions of these proteins once you've identified them? See, that, that's something that's beautiful is that we could always order uh, the gene. Once we have the sequence, we can right. retroactively make the gene. We yep. can have it synthesized. We can pop it into different expression systems. And really, to my, in my opinion and, and my lab's opinion, being able to get the sequence de novo and then recombinantly express it and it still is active is one of the only ways you can really say that you got a command of that sequence, yeah. right? I mean, you could drive down the cost substantially in producing this. Mm -hmm. So if it only takes 500 micrograms to a milligram to sequence the protein, once you have that, if it behaves, of course, we were just talking about proteins. Right. It's difficult, but if it behaves, it doesn't matter how much you have of the original source organism anymore. It's all yours. It's, exactly. You and can make it without a problem. Furthermore, you have the ability to mutate so many different residues inside of that sequence because not all of them are important for mm -hmm. the actual activity that you're observing. And so if you find that you have mitogenic or immunologic responses whenever you use your animal models, you could try to enhance the activities that you want while suppressing the others that you have. Mm. And people always say, you know, well, proteins is therapeutics, it's crazy, it doesn't make sense, they're too big and complicated. But monoclonal antibodies are huge. Uh, right. Botox is probably in most people's faces in America, or at least <laughs> in California. If you saw oh me, God, you'd know uh, it's not in mine. Uh, Neocalcin, different types of, of proteins are actually therapeutics, as well as l from uh, microbial species that are used for anti-cancer uh, conjugate therapies. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's just a lot of room to improve. And is there any pharmaceutical industry sort of interest in the work that's being done with these natural therapeutics? Well, so the L-asparaginase is actually a therapeutic. Mm -hmm. Of course, Botox, insulin, these, these guys actually make uh, a lot of money and they're extremely important. Um, I think that because of this resurgence of genomics and appreciation for the complexities of nature and you know evolution of these complicated organisms i think that natural products exploration is reaching a, a renaissance in a way mm -hmm. uh, for a while it was so easy to discover the same thing over and over again but now we have increased resolution with chromatography we have techniques that allow us to look at genomic sequences and context that we, we i mean we didn't even know about you know, 40 or 50 years ago. Right. Um, being able to use all of these techniques with sensitive mass spec for sequencing and identification and fantastic chromatography systems, um, we're just able to see better than we've ever been able to see. And people are respecting that nature has just hardly been explored for these intriguing potential therapeutics. Mm -hmm. And if you couple it with identification of proteins from marine sources, you know, which is not easy to get with all these new technologies, it's really just, I don't know, I think it's kind of opening people's 
eyes up to the possibilities and potentials. Yeah, the the it's mind blowing when you think about it. So renewed interest in natural biotherapeutics, wonderful. These new, more refined, more sensitive techniques to assist in their isolation, Never. identification, purification, etc. Excellent. Yeah. Do you have concerns of what potential impacts the global warming may have? You know, we have this untapped resource that Mother Nature has been perfecting over millions of years or a higher power has intelligently designed, depending upon your belief system. And do you see the potential that we could be losing countless therapeutics through acidification of the oceans or...? Yes, actually... um... I think that the, the like the coral reef bleaching is obviously a problem. There was a small amount of average increase in the ocean temperature, which was enough to cause this problem. Uh, we certainly don't understand it, and and it's it's complicated. And of course, everybody as a, a human has, I believe, a, a duty to not ruin our planet. So we need to change our lifestyles to prevent this type of stuff from happening. But there are also groups that are trying to understand how we as humans can help the coral and sea life live. And so there's a group that's actually looking at selecting for coral that are capable of withstanding higher temperatures. Mm-hmm. And then there's a person who actually, um, he was just getting ready to retire. I was reading the story about him uh, when he discovered that if you break apart larger coral, you can get them to grow to the same size within a much smaller lifetime. So you get them to grow big, you crack them up into small pieces, and each of those small pieces grow quick, very quickly to a massive size. And so there, there are ways that maybe we can be reseeding, hmm. not with the sea, but with an S, the yes. ocean with these coral, so that maybe we could build this type of thing up. I think that humans are extremely resilient and, and adaptable, and, and whenever there really is a lot of pressure on something, they seem to find ways around problems, which mm-hmm. hopefully will be resourceful enough to recognize the importance of the ocean. Now, to your other question about is there potential therapeutic space that we might be losing, I think that that's happening every day, and we're also gaining new stuff as well. It's a dynamic process, which I think can always allow evolution, of course, can always derive these types of complicated mechanisms to kill cells so long as there's the ability for fitness and there is the actual challenge. Uh, purple drank. It's been bugging me. You mentioned that last time we spoke. Oh, Purple Drank. What the heck was Purple Drank? Yeah, that's a code name for one of, uh, one of the hits. Uh, it came from a really beautiful purple extract. Um, but this protein is just seems to be fairly potent, super easy purification scheme. Hick with anion exchange is the only peak that eluded at like 50% B and, and AEX. So it was like isolated perfectly. Oh, wow. There's nothing else in the gel. It yeah. never happens that way. No. And I go to sequence and suddenly that peak turns into three peaks because alkylation caused... It was a multimer, of course, internally blocked on both of the monomers, which means I can't do Edmund degradation. Uh, So it's just been a mess. My boss says there's always a pound of flesh with a project. I truthfully wish that that pound of flesh is with purification, not with sequencing (laughs) and all subsequent things that follow. That's Purple Drink. 
I um yeah, I went to my local bar and asked for a purple drink the other day and I don't know what he gave me, <laughs> but yeah, it was strong. <laughs> 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 When you think about medicines and natural therapies, natural biotherapeutics, you know, there's a long, long history of medicines that are derived from nature. Can anyone name any? Aspirin. Aspirin, very good, which comes from? Tree bark. The willow tree, very good, yeah. People used to chew the bark or chew the leaves and they'd get the salicin from it. Any others you can think of? Aloe. Aloe, yeah. Aloe. Aloe to you too? Yeah. Opioids? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't Opioids know these were... Opioids from the poppy. Huh. So there's some examples. There's others. The antimalarial medications that are from wormwood or Chinese sagebrush. Um, a drug called Taxol that's used in breast, lung, and ovarian cancer, which was derived from the Pacific yew tree. So have all of these naturally occurring therapeutics. So in listening to the interview, I uh, noticed Carter mentioned something called purple drank. Can you expand on that a little? Um, it's a really, really strong cocktail that you can get at a bar near where he works. You didn't bring any for us? I did, but it got lost on the way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Is no, it's a protein extract from one of the samples that he's um, analyzing and it is very purple, so when you run it through the chromatography column, it's very easy to see because you get this very nice purple band. That sounds cool. Coming through, yeah. And has the coolest name. There should be a cocktail named Purple Drank, if there isn't already. There's got I think be. there is. There's got to be somewhere, hasn't there? Yeah. So driving along Oklahoma highways looking for dead animals, you know, I've been on many Oklahoma highways, seen lots of dead animals, but I've never thought about the fact that that's free sample to use right yeah the roadkill grill it sounds like a great sideline but yeah when you think about all the restrictions for animal research if they're just donated by a parting truck then great (laughs) go and sample it must have been miserable though going down there in the summer it's not that bad so the part that i found kind of the most surprising and interesting was you had brought up should we be concerned with climate change that we're going to start to lose the source of some of these samples? And it was really, I was expecting this big conversation on, yeah, this is, of course, we all know it's a very negative thing that we need to be doing a lot of research into going on and on here. But I thought it was really surprising how we brought up that it may actually um, present new opportunities for research as these things sort of evolve with climate change. What concerns me, though, is the rate at which climate change is impacting the environment and you think of evolution it's not boom today i'm this tomorrow i'm that so the pace at which organisms could evolve to adapt to the new conditions to me you know it's going to be way beyond millennia potentially but it could activate certain genes that have been turned off for a while and we can you know just looking at the opportunity yeah i completely agree it could be just too deleterious to work but wow that's word of the day right there (laughs) but it could also activate genes that are not being (laughs) it could activate genes that are not turned on currently that they aren't necessarily picking up in their um survey yeah it's possible it's it's the big unknown isn't it it's 
a likely outcome, but it's not a guaranteed outcome. Yeah. But it's not just climate change in terms of the raising sea temperatures, but the acidification of the oceans and all of the pollutants that are circulating and then that you know the other piece that i found interesting was not just that evolution is going to afford these opportunities for new things and organisms but that as we research climate change we're finding um new positives like he talked about the coral and how if you actually break apart these pieces of coral they grow into bigger kind of chunks that are alive and i think it's cool that like as we're researching this very important topic we're seeing new things come into play that could help us even mm-hmm. in drug development or with some of the um, diseases that we're trying to find cures or treatments for. Right. One thing I wanted to do, how is it, you know, we supposedly are at the top of the food chain with the most evolved creature, blah, blah, blah. But um, you take a <laughs> sea anemone or a starfish and you chop a leg off and it just like, oh, you bugger. And then it grows a new one. Or you cut the tail off a lizard, go back in six months and it's grown another one. And that's not just in the ocean too. Like that's like a salamander. Like right. You, you can cut off the um, fingers or hand of a salamander and it can, it can grow it back. There's yeah. active research into trying to figure out like what, you know, our, our cells just, okay, we, we're going to go ahead and create, create a protective barrier and seal off that wound. But they actually, their stem cells are reactivated and grow into a whole nother limb. Right. So how, you know, being able to discover and figure out how is that happening? Exactly. I mean, could you imagine instead of prosthetics, you have regenerative medicine. It's incredible. Now, in terms of the actual sequence of their the organism's DNA, I mean, because they're still actively working on multiple different marine animals and sequencing their DNA, have they elucidated the sequence of Carter's? You know, the... the ultimate goal from this is it's not practical to pull on your speedos and dive down to pull out a sea sponge every time you need a medicine so if they can synthesize these compounds that's when Mm -hmm. it truly becomes you know pharmaceutically viable but i don't believe the sequencing has been done yet yeah so you just mentioned the difference uh, or uh because we're talking about proteins but then you're also talking about synthesizing a compound so Mm -hmm. is it both compounds and small molecules as well as proteins it's primarily proteins okay you know when you think of the main biotherapeutic that everyone talks about now it's antibodies mm-hmm. and protein so these are proteins that they're looking at and if they can get the sequence of the protein then you can raise it recombinantly so one of the things that i um, hadn't heard before was the fact that proteins are biodegradable which is very obvious and true but in comparing that to small molecules, you know, one of the or antibiotics, you know, we're getting more and more antibiotic resistance because it, we process it, it goes through, and then eventually it all ends up in the ocean. Proteins mm-hmm. aren't that way. Like, they're going to be continually able to help us, which I thought was something interesting. And I don't know, like, did, did, had anybody else thought of that before about the fact that we're not going to have the same pollution problem that we have um, manufacturing large amounts of small molecules that we do of having manufacturing large amounts of proteins. Right. No, it, it's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. So why is it, and correct me if I'm wrong, that pharma companies haven't been looking heavily into natural sources? I think it's because it's a an unknown. They don't necessarily see the reward possibly. That, you know, that they, there's a lot of effort that has to go into it before you actually find something that's working as well as you want it to. 
And so there's just a big question mark and a big risk. And so they would, they allow academic researchers to take that risk. And then once something is found, then they'll pick it up and start collaborating with someone that's already found something. Mm -hmm. I think that because of the risk involved and that you might not find anything, I mean, that's just a guess. But that happens with the sources that pharma companies are looking at now. So what's the... But if they're synthetic, small molecules they're working on, you're creating those in a very controlled environment. When you think of the millions of variables that occur in nature and the variability that you could have between square bob who lives over here and cuboid robert who lives on the other side of the ocean (laughs) closely related but very different you know there's so many variables occurring in nature that finding a consistent source of something is i would think much more challenging Hmm. but hey if you have to sail around the oceans on a yacht to find these i'm sure there are plenty of people willing to is that you volunteering if they need i don't look too good in speedos but i don't (laughs) think anyone does with technologies getting more and more sensitive, mm-hmm. um, we can use smaller and smaller samples, and um, and the process gets a lot faster to get to the end result to mm-hmm. isolate the protein and uh, move on to the next steps mm-hmm. to create the drug. That's a great point. So kind of the way technology has progressed has allowed for these because he talked about how he only gets a small amount mm-hmm. of super potent right mm-hmm. so maybe just technology is now allowing for this to become a more viable source yeah agree and i also think that one of the reasons that we might not have seen a marine biologic come to full fruition yet is the fact that the standards keep getting higher and higher and higher for actual drug development So now aspirin would never be approved as a drug because Mm -hmm. it has so many different effects on different pathways. And so because we are being more and more stringent, you know, the bar is set higher and higher. And so we've only been looking at this source of biologics for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, whereas we've been looking at small molecules for the past hundred. That's true. But when you say we, are we talking Western cultures? That's when true. you think about the indigenous peoples all over the world who have been using these plants to treat this and this animal to treat that, mm-hmm. you know, they've known about these things for generations. And in my research, I find that often they learn by observing animals. And if an animal is feeling sick, it will go to a particular plant and eat the plant. And so, you know, we could have a lot to learn just by coming down from our ivory towers and going and spending time with the, the indigenous cool population. Yeah. I watched a documentary recently that had, or was watching monkeys and how they um, avoid bug bites and mosquitoes and things like that, where we have, uh, you know, bug spray and DEET. They actually will take and rub spicy peppers and they rub all types of food all over themselves. And like, they've learned how, like, what are the things that, uh, or what are the um, different plants that will actually help repel bugs? And they just take and they just rub it everywhere. It's really interesting, I thought. Just a little tie-in. Yeah, knowing my luck, I'd pick up the poison oak and rub that all over. <laughs> and that would keep everything away and everyone. Dogs usually eat grass when they have stomach aches. They do. Yeah, that's true. Have you tried it? Grass? <laughs> no. We are in Berkeley, so, you know, it's... Kind of going back to we were talking about uh, 
the evolution of drug development from small molecule to biologics, it's also interesting from, uh, I don't know, what do we call ourselves, technologists? Like a technology side of it. It gives us uh, interesting insight into where we might look to develop some of our products. He talked about a lot of the challenges he has in a purification scheme with a sample that's so high in salt and so like, what do you say, mucoid, mucousy? Gelatinous, yeah. yeah, 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 gelatinous. Um, I wonder what new solutions will come to meet these researchers as they, as maybe we get further into this. Yeah, I wonder if it's going to be development of new chromatography resin or if it's going to be development of new types of surfactants and detergents to be able to break yeah. that up. Right. Sample prep. Sample kind of prep. Stuff. Yeah, the front end as you move away from the more traditional protein sources, yeah. Yeah, so that you can break things up and then still put it over the typical chromatography mm-hmm. media, or it's some type of new type of media where it, you don't have to have a perfect sample that, right? I don't know. You can just take the sea sponge and squeeze it over the top of the column really tight. Sometimes working in like the development space for Chrome, I think of myself and us as like purification detectives. <laughs> So it'll be kind of cool how we can like solve this mystery, right? Yeah, we know what you mean. Being able to help researchers do the work that they do to be able to further scientific discovery. Yeah, it's an interesting challenge that we'll possibly get to help tackle more and more moving forward if people look into these sources. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you, Carter, for that interesting discussion. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget to check out bioradiations.com. Check out the BioRad YouTube channel. Um, You'll hear all our other podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe. Tell all your friends. And thanks for hanging with us. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.